Hello and welcome to Metro Cinema Presents Close Up. It's a podcast in which we discuss the goings-on at Metro Cinema in the month to come, as well as whatever else we can crowbar in. Uh, before we go any further, my name is Owen. I'm the projectionist at Metro Cinema, as well as the uh, co-host of the monthly Metro Cinema Trivia at the Tavern on White. To my left... Uh, I'm Talisha. I'm a front of house manager and the communication specialist. Hi, I'm Will. I scoop corn. Every time, man. Every time. <laughs> I've got to keep it consistent. I like it. I'm Heather, and I am the vice president of the Metro Board and the chair of the programming committee. And now, also uh, with Talisha, you are also second place winners Ooh. of the Metro Movie Trivia. We're, we're that coming. must feel pretty nice. It wow. does. Yeah. It really, really does. We're and really coming for Blue Hawaii's title now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Was the gap Blue is Hawaii's cl- usual competitors there and you beat them out? Yeah, we, wow. they were. Wow. Outpost 69. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You'll also be hearing uh, throughout the show music from Mark Templeton, Ghost Cars, Pigeon Breeders, uh, Boosh, Westphalia, Legend, uh, Leonard J. Paul, and uh, whoever else I can find. Actually, also Tyson Parker in whatever guise he uh, chooses to allow me to use his music from. Throughout the show, I'll also be talking to uh, Dylan Reese Howard about the uh, Nick... Uh, sorry, Nick Cassavetes? No. <laughs> <laughs> talking to Dylan Reese Howard about the John Cassavetes uh, retrospective we've got going on. It's a three-film series. Uh, also Maggie Hardy about Que Viva Mexico and Dave Clark about Clockwork Orange for Band in Alberta. Um, and we're going to start off, as we always do, just any old where. So let's go through the list. I've written these in chronological order. The first one I wrote down was The Souvenir, which is a new film. I know it's directed by Joanna Hogg. Okay. Yeah, have you but seen any other films I haven't, her? no. Okay. But I think this one's getting, like, some festival intrigue. Yeah, it won Isn't a big award at Sundance, the, like, world cinema award. Is this one like semi-autobiographical as well? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think she drew a lot from her own diaries as kind of an emerging filmmaker and I think she incorporates her first Super 8 film in it as well. Yeah, it sounds like she really tried to tell her own story but then of course it's also a fiction by virtue of the fact that you're using actors who are going to interpret things in their own ways. And it was an exhibition. No. no, but I feel like we showed that at the uh, at the ICA when it came out, and there was a Q and A after the film, and she was attacked verbally by one gentleman who accused her of deliberately not including non-white actors in the film, and she was really put on the spot and forced to defend her yes. m- middle-class heritage, basically, mm. which I suppose you know, uh, isn't necessarily the most unfair thing in the world. But in the context of the Q&A, it was a really weird thing to happen. It was just, you know, somebody had gone there with an agenda. I mean, if you'd seen, you know, uh, if you'd seen the trailer for Exhibition or read anything about it at all, it's not like you're going there expecting to see Sweet Sweetback um, <laughs> Badass Song. It's, you know, it's, it, it is what it is. It's, and I guess, like, the problem with, like, representation and, like, those kind of topics is, like, no one film is to blame. Like, you can't yeah. be like, oh, this one did it wrong. Like, yeah, it's a cultural, yeah. like, overarching problem. You can't just blame, like, one person for it. I suppose the, the, maybe the angle that the person was coming from, does it, it, was, it was symptomatic of a greater problem. Mm. But I still find that it was a strange approach to, you know, come and... Unless he does that for every film. Right. Yeah, in which case, you know, I'm being judgmental. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, she survived that. Yeah, I, I've heard of Archipelago. It's another. Film yeah, I think that was the one, uh, either just before or just uh, just before it. So that was in 2010, mm-hmm. and she's got another one already on the way. The Souvenir Part Two. Yeah. Um, which is uh, incredible because this is the first time hearing of the first one. <laughs> I think it, the movie ends telling you that there will be a part two. Oh, okay. So yeah. it was always built into this film that it, there would be a sequel which okay. is kind of neat you don't actually see you know even you know conceptual trilogies and stuff that kind of start out with that in mind don't broadcast it in that way usually so i, I believe back to the future did yes <laughs> and then they reshot it like they they had to because they had to change the actress to elizabeth oh, Shue, yeah, right that's so right. that yeah. it always it always wears me out because the actors act the whole scene very differently in the be- end of Back to the Future and yeah. Back to the Future 2 and it's just like it's just weird yeah, yeah. there was no attempt to uh, to, to match sort of, it to, to smooth that over at all yeah nothing to do with the souvenir of course <laughs> uh, which again sounds very much like it was made immediately afterwards and perhaps was made as an entire film that was split into uh, into two 
As we've not quite said yet, the souvenir follows a young film student in the early 80s in England, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, and she becomes romantically involved with a complicated and untrustworthy man. Director Joanna Hogg is known for casting a mixture of both actors and non-actors, and she's also an artist that incorporates a strong sense of realism in her work, which, uh, owing to her unapologetic and unarguable depiction of middle-class characters, is also an indication of her having written what she knows. In 2011, she and Anne Roberts co-founded the Anon Amour Cinema Collective, which is dedicated to programming overlooked, underexposed, or especially potent cinema. And if you fancy watching Tom Hiddleston doing something other than playing a Marvel and Antagonist, and I'd recommend his three collaborations with Hogg in Exhibition, Archipelago, and his very first feature, Unrelated, from 2007. So that's a new release, and it opens on July 5th, and I would imagine uh, it plays more than once. Back once again, it's Dave Clark, the incredible, the rhyme animal. <laughs> the what animal? The rhyme animal. I don't know rhyme why I said that, but not really. Uh, Dave is former host of Turkey Shoot as well as a writer and musician. He hosts uh, the monthly Garno Ghostlight Tour. He's also been, uh, currently been uh, curating band in Alberta for the past few months. So over the which time we've screened Tom Jones, Women in Love, The Wild One, and now closing it all out with uh, a true heavyweight offender Stanley Kubrick's 1971 film A Clockwork Orange so true Dave welcome back it's a heavyweight uh, this is probably the least surprising uh, <laughs> in your series to have been banned here probably because it's been banned in a lot of places yeah. um, but is it for the endless list of obvious reasons or did Alberta censors just not like the northern accent oh no they were fine with the accents yeah. no they banned it for uh, they, they actually for the first time they actually praised the film Oh, really? So a lot of the time when they're banning movies like uh, Tom Jones from the early 60s, Women in Love, they don't praise the films. They're going, there's a penis in that film and we're not going to allow it. But, uh, and the, you know, those are both fairly artistically credible British films. Yeah. The Wild One is banned for being threatening to social cohesion, as we talked about before. But this one is kind of covers all the banned sluts, really. Right. Violent. Ultraviolent. Uh, it's yeah. got uh, nudity. It's got uh, a, a very powerful rape scene. It's got frolicking with what might be underage girls. It's hard to tell from the film. It's hard to tell from the film, but not from the book. Not from the book. In which it's made very specific. Very actually. specific, yes. No older than 10. Book. Well, they changed his age as well. The uh, the, the yeah. central character, Al Alex DeLarge, is 15 in the book and 17 in the, in the yeah. film to yeah. avoid somewhat of what yeah. yeah so I think in general it's easy to talk about the film it's shot in 69 in, into the early 70s Kubrick's fastest shoot mm -hmm. uh, based on Anthony Burgess's novel Clockwork Orange the film is about social control conversion therapy they're trying to convert Alex from a sort of a bestial man into a kind of a, the clockwork orange of the title, the human that is functional on the outside and repressed. This one's interesting because what we have is a massive change right in the late 60s. Uh, based, so the so social credit government uh, at the time, uh, which had been in power in Alberta since 1935, a self-confessed benevolent dictatorship, the policies of conservatism without the bother of democracy, as a social credit premier said back in the day. You've got a Peter Lockheed's conservative government wins the election, and it's one of those reorientation elections. It's actually a lot like the election of the New Democratic Party four years ago. And there are big parallels between the New Democratic Party government and the first five, six years of the progressive conservative government in the early 70s. And one of the big ones is censorship. So there were 22 films banned the same year as Clockwork Orange was banned. Myra Breckenbridge, uh, Russ Meyer's Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. How dare they? How dare they, I know. Written by Roger Ebert, who did not like a Clockwork Orange, the film, at all. You're still running uh, film censorship under the Alberta Amusements Act, which is from 1912, 1913. Films were allowed to be banned in Alberta until 2009. So this guy, uh, Horst Schmidt, who was born in Bavaria okay. in Munich, was the uh, Alberta Ministry of Culture. 
they dissolved the office of the provincial secretary, which basically was running censorship, licensing, gambling, bars, everything, in the early 70s. And they created a Ministry of Culture, and Hoshmet was a pretty funky guy. And when Clockwork Orange was banned, it did reopen this censorship can of worms. You've got uh, a fellow called Grant Notley, who's the only member of the NDP in the provincial legislature, elected at the same time as the provincial, because this is Rachel Notley's father. Right, yeah. And he definitely raised questions in the ledge about this. He was the only person to raise questions about it, because the rest of the opposition was social credit Mm -hmm. at that time still. Horschmidt becomes the Minister of Culture, Youth and Recreation, and immediately they ban the film, but then, for the obvious reasons, while saying we quite liked it, it's artistically very good, but it wallows in sex and violence. Mm-hmm. Horst, under some pressure, but also I think from some personal beliefs too, had a big review of the censorship board as a result of the banning of this film. And they take 15 submissions from Alberta notables. And uh, nine out of the 15 basically said, keep censorship. We don't want you to give it up. Now, it's important to know that Quebec had scrapped its film censorship board in the early 60s and Manitoba scrapped theirs in 1972, right? So censorship boards in Canada have been disappearing and Alberta is hanging on to its own film censorship board. Alberta didn't have an adult classification. It kind of had a general and an A accompanied but it had no classification for adults only and this was the battle that was happening over tom jones and also over women in love is that we can't our only option is to ban the film because we can't show it under the classification system and we don't want to change the classification system because it'll lead to these films being shown Western courts and then a Quebec court basically rule that uh, let's say you're showing uh, let's let's say you you show a film that's been passed by this the Alberta censorship board in Alberta and then that film is prosecuted for obscenity say by the city of Edmonton the city of Red Deer the city of Calgary this happened a lot back in the day and that film is banned by the city under the obscenity laws of Canada. Most countries have banned films under their federal obscenity laws. Several Western courts, once the cinemas said, well, we brought this film in for a film festival, we lost $70,000, we'd like that money back because the board passed it. The board is then liable to be sued. And so the change in censorship didn't really happen for morality. It happened because of legal liability. And films remained the key point of censorship here and in lots of other places for much longer than books and other products. Yeah. And the reason yeah. being they're mass media. The reason being po- a popular film that's mass entertainment is way more likely to be seen by a larger audience. Bear in mind that Alberta was allowing uh, pornography to be shown at this point. Yeah. You know, where we have the first mainstream pornography uh, hardcore pornography starting around 1970 even before that Alberta was passing uh, nudity in films what they Alberta wasn't worried about those films because they would think of them as raincoater films right yeah. a very select audience there's no chance of a, an old lady who hasn't had sex for 37 years to see it and write a letter to the government just before she died of a heart attack, right? Yeah, you have to make yeah. a choice to go and see these films. You know. And also, back to Clockwork Orange briefly, its influence on p- other filmmakers here in Alberta mm. was quite considerable. Like, I, 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 just one example, P- Peter Wonsdorf, uh, who is, uh, if you follow Alberta and Canadian films, is a, cine- a great cinematographer and DOP. He uh, shot Brokeback Mountain. Okay. It's from Jasper. I think he lives in Banff or Jasper still. This was a huge... Clockwork Orange, he saw it when he was 12. And he said, of course, I shouldn't really have seen it, but it made me want to be a filmmaker. So we should probably remind people, or just tell them, just... Tell them. Just tell them. Just tell them, yeah. It's A Clockwork Orange, banned in Alberta. It is at at 9.30 on July 20th. 
and uh, you're going to be talking before the film. Yeah, for less than ten minutes. Less than ten minutes, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, no. The show starts at nine thirty, and yeah. the show includes Dave. So just be here. But yeah, it's a good film. You've got uh, Dave Prowse in there, the Green Cross Code Man, and uh, Darth Vader's body. Yeah, yeah. I'm so the m- you know, more of Russ Meyer films. More familiar with him as the Green Cross Code Man <laughs> because he came to my school. Aww. Stop, look, listen, there's more to it than that. Isn't he a West Country man as well? Certainly is. 9.30, July 20th, Clockwork Orange. Dave, thank you very much for coming in again. My pleasure. And in Alberta. <laughs> but not just here, not this one. <laughs> but not on the 20th. <laughs> not on the 20th. Okay. Uh, Heather. Yes. Uh, let's talk about the father video kitchen slash main course. Sure. Which is a thing that uh, we have already mentioned on here, but I think you said it was back in February. Yeah. Yeah, I can summarize it again. So in my day job, I am uh, the programmer at FAVA, which is the Film and Video Arts Society of Alberta. There we teach workshops and classes on filmmaking. And so Video Kitchen is our intro to filmmaking class. It's a 12-week class, four hours a week. You kind of learn all the little bits that go together into making a film. And then outside of class time, you can rent the gear from Fava to make a short film, usually about three to six or seven minutes. And so that's our video kitchen class. And then main course is the follow-up. So video kitchen kind of teaches you the very basics and main course is more intermediate. It's a bit more curated to your particular interests. So if a member wants to shoot on film as opposed to digital, they can do that. And they get a bit more, I think, leeway in terms of like, how long their film is and stuff like that. So then we end the class with screenings of the films. So it's always really cool to see what people come up with. It's a really insanely short period of time Mm -hmm. to make a film, especially when you probably got other stuff going on. Like most of these people have jobs and things and this is just something they're exploring on the side and obviously very low budgets, very small um, crews, but it's just every different type of thing. You might see a music video and a horror movie and a comedy and a documentary all in one thing. And I think it's really inspiring it kind of makes you want to walk away and make your own movie. And also, it's just great for filmmakers who are, you know, starting out to see their film in that format in the Metro Cinema as opposed to, like, on a little computer screen. So I would encourage people to come check it out, especially if you are interested in making film yourself. And uh, I can certainly attest to the difficulty of making a film with absolutely anything else going on in your life. Myself, Will and Talisha. Everyone but me at this table. And, uh, yeah. But you have made films, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. sure, sure, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. I wasn't involved in that particular... But we failed. Also, we... Uh, well, no, I mean, we, we, what happened was the, the, our star... We just didn't finish. ...got a haircut. That's what we're saying. Yeah, Star yeah, yeah. got a haircut. Yeah. She Ruined the whole shaved thing. her head. And uh, then it became winter. Yeah. So <laughs> we had a pretty big window, to be fair. And uh, so maybe we. Maybe no one's really to blame. I want to say uh, <laughs> there was a lot. There was a lot of things that that uh, we had not even considered when we were thinking about it and, and and talking about it before actually going out and filming it. One thing, the use of a steady cam, decided to look on uh, online at DIY alternatives, and I think we did a reasonable job with little money, but but perhaps not because it didn't even work really as a steady cam. <laughs> No, it didn't look very good. I felt like it was working better than the than not using one though. I I, I would like to think so. I mean, yeah. we we recently showed uh, Long Days Junior tonight. Yes, that director's debut film. He has a very long take in it as well. But that film had like no budget. And yeah. the long take in that is like sixty minutes long, and it looks like in uh, Long Days Journey. In Kaylee Blues is what it's called. Oh, Kaylee Blues. Directorial debut. But the, the final hour or so of, of Long Day's Journey is, is, uh, yeah. is a single take. It's the same it? for yeah. his first film as well. Oh, right. But, first okay. film but now like he's got a, a real dolly. Yeah. But wow. before he didn't, and it was like, it looked kind of average, but trying to make a short film using like lots of... It's, know, it's easy to see. Once you get your hands on a camera and trying to uh, realize what you had visualized, I really wanted to do a series called One Take Wonders that was uh, you know, focused on films that had uh, either just one take in them or just long takes. So start, the, did you see Victoria? I think we may have spoken about this before, but Victoria was the, the film set in Berlin, I think. Yeah. And it was about, was it set in Berlin? And there's the young, the Spanish girl who gets involved in a heist somehow. 
And you don't, again, it's like the best kind of films like that. You don't realize that there is not a single cut in it because you're so kind of focused on how quickly the narrative shifts. And as we were talking about, weirdly, when you came in, um, although it was stemmed for, it stemmed from a conversation about Buffy, um, the a point that Hitchcock was trying to prove in making Rope was that, in fact, editing was not the uh, primary um, resource for telling a story. Mm-hmm. And so he made Rope, which has just very little editing. Yeah. But Russian Ark as well would be a fantastic one to show on the big screen. Birdman's like Birdman is a, is an attempt at doing that, isn't it? But yeah. but I mean it's yeah I think it's been shot there in a way that's cuts. Yeah, it's cuts. but they've yeah. they've designed it in a way that it's supposed to be seamless. I mean that it kind of feels more like an aesthetic. I don't know. I love the use of it in uh, in Russian Ark because it really feels like you're walking around the the, uh, the Hermitage Museum and drifting through these different time zones, and it kind of feels. It feels like, yeah, time is kind of washing over you and that's uh, used, to, I think, to kind of like conceptual effect quite nicely. You might not see much of that at, at, uh, the, for, at Video Kitchen or Main Course, but you might. The, and we do have a dolly you can rent what? if you why? need a dolly. Yeah, why are you we telling may, us this we now? We may yeah, not yeah. have had it when you were making your... We were, if there was a period where we were dollyless, okay. but... Okay, um, yeah. yeah. We'll just say we were trying to make it in the dollyless era of father <laughs> yeah, yeah before there was dollies yeah. last year yeah. so these two courses are the best of both courses or is it is it actually everyone it's it's everyone who manages to complete one okay. because some you know sometimes you take the class and then you know it, you get six weeks after the class approximately to finish your film and and you know like you guys learned sometimes it's not what you wanted it to be and you're not ready to screen it maybe you want to screen it later maybe you'll never screen it but it's usually i would say it's at least half the class that completes a film so there's usually about and a class can be anywhere from like six to 14 people so okay and and it's also fun just because everyone brings their friends and family there so you actually do get a very engaged and uh enthusiastic audience and then there's a QA after which um puts all of these poor (laughs) emerging filmmakers on the spot uh so uh what are the dates Uh, that's the 21st and 27th both at 3 30 right okay yeah you could sign up for the fava e-bulletin it'll be in there the e-bulletin. Fatbava.ca. <laughs> <laughs> also information on our classes and workshops. Yeah. Pitch everything you can. If anything you got coming up, this is the place. Owen and I have a short film coming out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, since we're talking about filmmaking, I will pitch the Got A Minute Film Festival, which we also do at Fava, mm-hmm. um, and the call for submissions just opened. And you, the idea is that you make a one-minute silent short film um, and it could be any genre. It just has to be family friendly because uh, it plays in public spaces across Edmonton. So primarily on the LRT screens and also in Calgary and there's a bunch of other places. But if you're just like wanting to attempt something, it's like a really, I think, a low a stress kind of way to get started with filmmaking because you don't have to worry about sound, which is like a huge headache. Do something fun. You can do something abstract. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> As long as it's family friendly. And so the call for submissions is out, and then the deadline for submissions is August 21st. Now, on every ship, there is a captain, the person that holds ultimate command and responsibility of a given vessel. They are in charge of its safety in operation, as well as the cargo and the people in it. It takes a keen navigator to negotiate the tempestuous task of running a successful ship, and the man with the big binoculars at Metro is none other than David Chiros. Uh, David has been executive director at Fava, general manager of the Theatre Network, co-producer of the Comedy Arts Festival, festival director of Fringe and also producer of Litfest, but his latest challenge is that of executive director right here aboard the good ship Metro Cinema. Uh, so he's here to talk about a special Metro fundraiser screening of Princess Bride, as well as some of the other things uh, we do to make sure this grand palace remains seaworthy. So David, welcome, and I apologize for the uh, litany of ship-based analogies. but Th- That's okay. I think... I think that I would now like to hire you to just follow me around at all times and give introductions like As that. As a scribe. Astonishing. I've been looking for a scribe for, for decades now, just someone to follow me around and just document things I say and do. First off, let's uh, tell us about July 8th and uh, what exactly is happening. Absolutely. Well, as Owen's introduction gives some indication, I'm old and I'm uh, turning 50 this July and I thought that um, we would make use of that connection to to do a celebration here at the Garneau. Princess Bride has a uh, lifelong 
uh, connection for me and for my entire family. And so we're doing a special uh, one-off screening that I'm hosting on uh, July 8th. There will be birthday cake, there will be lots of preliminary silliness, and I'm sure that at some point someone will sing happy birthday. And then we'll get on with the serious business of watching a, you know, one of the truly the, the masterworks of subtlety in, in cinema. Yeah. Hopefully the cake is in the shape of a boat as well. Um, Absolutely. Or even that. possibly the sound of ultimate suffering. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, Pictures Bride is one that we've been able to bring back a um, multitude of times. It's kind of like a sort of uh, a more upmarket version of The Room in I, terms of I, it, I would it's, certainly it's, it's reliability yep. and Rocky Horror as well. It's just one that people will always turn up to. We've done it. We've shown it in a variety of, of ways. Either it was just a straight screening. We've done this, the uh, the quote alongs. It's been, uh, it's been a, a family film. Family it's film, been metro movie party. So it's uh, it's yeah, it's a, it's a fun time always, and uh, it's nice to have some kind of addition to the event as well. Have someone you know introduce it and make it kind of more of a communal thing because it's kind of uh, it's developed that. Um, cult status that status isn't it yeah absolutely in Edmonton, it's nice um, so, so that's July 8th and it's also your birthday happy birthday in advance if I forget but what else can you tell us about what Metro does in terms of fundraising absolutely so like a lot of charities there is a sense of always trying to pull together two frayed uh, pieces of rope uh, and never quite having the ends meet and so I think of fundraising as the thing that gives you enough play to tie a knot in the rope and keep going. Um, so we do outreach to foundations. We do lots of partnerships with businesses that I think of not so much changing what Metro does as simply making it uh, more successful. Mm-hmm. We do um, outreach to individual donors and individual donors have been an amazing support both for our ongoing programming for the restoration work that we're doing um, on an ongoing basis here at the Garneau, uh, and also for the, the establishment of a new endowment fund that we created last fall. Uh, the endowment fund, which was created with the Edmonton Community Foundation, is meant to be an enduring source of, of stability for Metro to, um, to help us keep screening films. We're, we're um, a 40-year-old organization, 40-plus-year-old organization, um, but have not got the, the kind of stability that a lot of other very established uh, organizations have uh, because we've often been broke over the course of those 40 years. We're a 40-year-old organization inside a nearly 80-year-old building yes. as well. So there's so a, it's, it's, uh, a double challenge. It's, it's not quite that we're still living with our parents, but um, we're certainly working hard to, to become more independent. Yeah. One of the other things that we continue to, to do is to try to figure out ways to incorporate a fundraising element into our programming that isn't intrusive and isn't entirely voluntary, doesn't make it harder for people to enjoy the work that we do, uh, but for those who are able and, and interested, it gives them other oppor- fun opportunities to, to connect with Metro. Uh, so, for instance, we do a lot of fun um, free screenings, but we gratefully accept charitable donations at those screenings. Charitable donations give you a 50% tax credit, so it's only like giving half the amount that you've actually given. And we're incorporating poster sales and uh, silent auctions, raffles, 50-50 draws, here and there where it seems appropriate for the individual screenings. And we mentioned it before in uh, in previous segments, but the, we're also very open to you know if, if there are things that you want to show here at Metro, there is a there's a process that you can go through. There's a, there's a link I believe on the website where you can you know you can put forward a, a, an idea for a season of films or a you know a cura- like you can curate your own your own films here. Yeah. Absolutely, we try to make it as open as possible, mm-hmm. um, and there's a few ways that you can do that with, depending on how involved you want to be. Uh, people do just email us out of the blue and say, really, you should screen this film. I love this film. I would bring my 20 friends to this film. And that's sometimes persuasive to us. Um, And uh, there is an annual process where people can can curate either individual finely crafted events or series. Uh, And we're going to be announcing a new season of those uh, at our season launch in September. 
and uh, and also of course some people just take the uh, take the reins themselves and they take responsibility either partnering with us on a screening as for instance Northwest Fest does or um, sometimes with the, the Edmonton Public Library uh, or they just they sort of take over the, the a screening time themselves and do whatever they want fantastic uh, crucially though how can people donate Absolutely. Other than just coming into the building, which I think is a thing. So we, of course, love to see you, but there is also a donation interface on our website. It's secure. They can donate the amount of their choice, either a small amount monthly or a single amount. And all of that, uh, again, is tax deductible. All right, David, thank you very much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Owen, thank you so much for having me. See you next time. This month on the 14th is uh, David Cronenberg's Rabid. Now, who around this year table has seen Rabid? I have seen Rabid. You have seen Rabid. And who has seen... You have not. And who has seen Shivers? I haven't, no. No. You haven't seen Shivers? Shivers was really hard to find for a long time. Rabid is kind of... Well, it's a very similar film to Shivers for a few reasons. Rabid from 1975 and uh, Shivers from 1977. I think he pretty much started making Shivers at exactly as soon as he finished making Rabbit because it got a lot of attention and both of them kind of have a similar subtext Rabbit is uh, has a sort of vampire it's about people that become, that have uh, they develop a growth and then they uh, suck blood from people which passes on an infection and then Shivers is about a parasite which people ingest or it goes inside people and then that that's uh, it's kind of a mind control sort of inv- invasion of the body snatchers type film but both of them are sort of they both predate the, the classification of HIV, which wasn't until, I think, about 81, although it was certainly present. Both films are an allegory for, for the spread of that as well. So they're both really interesting. And uh, I don't know, I mean, how do you feel about, Will, where do you, where do you feel like the rabid stands in the sort of the, the Cronenberg canon? Because he's somebody that I think for most of his entire career has managed to sort of not reinvent himself, but he's somebody that can still tell a really compelling story with uh, a lot of the same kind of like hallmarks of what made him a, an auteur as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it has like your Cronenberg icky bodily yes. gruesome vibe going on, which is always you know a fun time. <laughs> um, I definitely it has like a slightly campier feel than like some of his later films. Like yeah, and so I think that's kind of an interesting double-sided like it has this humorous aspect to it, but it's also like kind of terrifying at the same time there's a naivety to it a little bit um not just in how the story is told but in how the film is made uh technically speaking and that kind of like shifts as you get into things like naked lunch uh well not naked lunch i mean uh, videodrome and the fly which still terrifies me to this day i was just gonna ask what people's favorite cronenberg movies are what, what, what was yours? i would probably say the fly yeah but yeah, it's 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 tough. I'm a big uh, Existence fan. Mm-hmm. Existence is another yeah, interesting just one. Just for yeah. the like flesh ports, those things are wild. <laughs> I, was, uh, like, I was I was going to attempt to make one of those for uh, for movie trivia. You should, but I don't think anyone would really know what it would yeah, what it outside is. Outside of con- a context of an yeah. entire body, I wanted to make the gun as well, but oh, that's yeah. oh, that's that, so cool. that would be too much. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I saw Dead Ringers, it like really like was, it's, I can't say it's a favorite because of how depressing it was. Yes. It but is, it yeah. definitely, it just impacted me. Like it would kind of ruin my day, which mm-hmm. I think it speaks That's what you to want the from quality a film. of the film. <laughs> um, but I haven't actually seen, like, I haven't seen The Brood. I haven't seen Shivers or Rabbit. I haven't seen most of his really early stuff. And yeah. I feel like going back and revisiting his stuff in this theater is kind of the ideal way oh, to do it yeah, yeah. like so I'm kind of I'm glad that I've waited and that now I can go see Rabid at Metro Retro July 14th at 1pm sees the next installment of Maggie Hardy's Silent Sundays which has been a wonderful addition to the schedule over the last few months having started off back in January with Sherlock Jr then in April with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea featuring a live musical accompaniment from Maggie herself and now we delve into the lesser celebrated world of Sergei Eisenstein's Que Viva Mexico. Uh, so Maggie, welcome back. Now this is an Eisenstein project that started in 1930, but was eventually abandoned until it was later somewhat pieced together by uh, Grigory Alexandrov in 1979. Tell us a bit more about that, because as I understand it, it was intended as an episodic portrayal of Mexican culture and politics from pre-conquest civilization to the Mexican Revolution. So part of that is 
during the 1920s in Europe, the avant-garde art group was really interested in Latin America, and specifically Mexico. Orientalism was out, Latin America was in. Being, you know, a Russian and part of Bolshevikism and all of that, Sergei Eisenstein was interested in the socialist Mexican Revolution of 1910, as was uh, famed American author Upton Sinclair, who, of course, wrote, like, Oil Oil, and the Jungle and the fantastic Gnome Mobile. So while Sergei Eisenstein's star was really rising uh, in Europe, he was uh, highly in demand in Hollywood. And so Paramount wanted him, Charlie Chaplin wanted him, and it just didn't work out. No one wanted to work with a communist. It was a bad scene all around. So Upton Sinclair and his wife, Mary Sinclair, started a fund to send Sergei Eisenstein to Mexico to specifically make an apolitical travelogue. That's not really what happened. And he ended up shooting like 50 hours of film. They went all across Mexico from the north to the south, from the east to the west. uh, And their guides were actually three members of the Mexican mural renaissance, Diego Rivera, David Siqueiros, and Jose Clemente Orozco, uh, who are all renowned painters. And so they ended up, yeah, going to Mexico, spent like a year there. The film was supposed to have wrapped up production like part of the trust, this Mexican film trust that the Sinclairs created. Uh, was under the caveat that a film be completed by 1931. This, of course, never happened. There were issues with immigration when Sergei Eisenstein was trying to go back to America. All of the film was processed in America, printed, everything, but they couldn't get it. And uh, they wouldn't get it until late, late, late in the 1960s. All of this film ended up at the MoMA, and the MoMA traded it for a few rare Soviet films. And then that's how uh, Grigori got his hands on it to do a completed version. Okay. But that said, at the same time, um, There were several completed projects made with the footage by Saul Lesser. And Saul Lesser was actually a pioneer in exploitation films and owned the rights for Tarzan. And he made every single Tarzan movie from Buster Crab to Weissmuller, the whole gamut. And he created three films at least with uh, the permission of the Sinclairs and Eisenstein's footage uh, that would be turned into Thunder Over Mexico, Death Day, and Sergei Eisenstein. In yeah, I was kind of confused when I was looking yeah. for it because I was finding, I was, you know, looking, searching for KV uh, Mexico. I kept finding this thing, Thunder of Mexico, and I was just confused by, I thought I was looking for a kind of uh, a, a travelogue, as you say, like a sort of anthropological yeah. kind of film. And that's not what that sounds like to that, me. No, that's not. Is what that it is. what it is? It was it, it turned into a sort of um, a kind of more narrative-driven that they sort of twisted the the footage. To yeah, sort of, yeah. Uh, very much so. And I mean, there there was a lot of footage that was shot. Um, in some ways, it's really interesting because the the 1979 completed version acts almost as both a precursor and afternote to Mondo okay. as a genre. Because I mean, by 79, Mondo. Kane had been out for, what, 15 years. Uh, But in 1931, this blend of surrealistic drama and actual documentary, um, especially the way that the edited version is completed, where it's silent with narration, is highly evocative of Mondo films and what that entire genre would become. So in terms of a musical element, is that going to be something that you're going to add to it as well? Then? Uh, there, there is a musical element already on, on the... Di- that's right. that's how uh, they completed it in the 70s. So there's... Sometimes there's parts where it's just almost like Mexican folk songs and sort of dreamy score bits. Uh, and other times they add sound effects like horses galloping in time with horses galloping. Yeah. Uh, really kind of to pep it up for modern audience. And it does have this very surreal kind of 
dreamscape feeling to it. Yeah. Uh, especially with the use of montage and editing. Like, there's this gorgeous scene in one of the... So, like, it's a segment film, and that that's part of why I, I draw comparisons to Mondo, mm. is that it really it takes place in segments, most about ten minutes long. I suppose that might be where it was intended as an, an episodic thing. Was that supposed to be... Yeah, there's this one in what's about the second part where uh, they're talking about a girl collecting her dowry and there's this beautiful just haunting image of this golden necklace transforming into a man in a hammock okay and it's like it just happens over frames and it's stunning Is this, is this something that you'd like to come back to, or have you got just another series planned uh, completely different to this? I would really like to come back to this. Uh, I think that Edmonton doesn't have a venue for silent film. Uh, they don't get shown at the at Fort Edmonton, and since the Edmonton Film Society, uh, Movie Society doesn't exist anymore, uh, and they were pretty much the only ones doing it, yeah. uh, there's no space really for silent film on the big screen which is a shame it is a shame and also weird because this place is huge yeah and uh, we have bands in here all the time it seems perfectly suited to it it seems like a it's uh you know as i was just saying to you that um silent film is a type of film and that's not a, a thing that we have a lot of variation of usually we show films that are either thematically linked or because they belong to a particular genre or because they're current mm-hmm. um, but silent film is, is like a way of watching film but what I like the, the live element is a really interesting thing and a great thing to engage with when you're in here it's nice to, to know that you're almost watching it being made in a way it's so interesting to be able to interact with history in such a viable sense yeah I mean like 20,000 Leagues was you know 1916 that's yeah 103 years old. Yeah, it's incredible to say, isn't it? Yeah. We're so far removed from that point in our daily lives that it seems kind of stunning to to interact with pop culture that that is more than 100 years old. Well, you know, I mean, it's not not as though it's uh, an original thing to say at all, but generally speaking, film is a thing that people tend to switch off to or to, you know, escape into... um, Whereas I like, I've always been a fan of, you know, the, the, the sort of expanded cinema and, you know, the Warhols exploding plastic inevitable and things like that. I like the idea of films happening when other things are going on as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's a, a thing that I think Silent Sundays was uh, certainly driving towards. Anyway, again, July 14th, one o'clock. Maggie, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. No problem. Joining me now is a local filmmaker, Dylan Reese Howard, whose uh, work you may well have seen at Metro in the form of an ongoing series entitled Heritage Minutes, uh, as well as last year's feature Peak Oil and a whole bunch of music videos. Uh, he's also on the board of directors at Father as the programming chair, and you may even recognize him from his appearance in uh, local adult film festival Blue Review, although that distinction doesn't really work. Uh, as an audio cue. Uh, Today he's here to talk about his upcoming series at Metro entitled The Study of Love, three films by John Cassavetes. So Dylan, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for that uh, extensive review of uh, my my catalogue. I could have made that a lot more extensive but I had to pare it down, but uh, that's how how it goes. Uh, So now, um, this year marks 30 years since uh, Cassavetes passed away, I believe. Um, so it's an anniversary retrospective, but I also uh, know he's a, a figure of personal interest to you. So tell me a bit about the importance of his work and how it perhaps even forms what you do. John Cassavetes was a, an actor of sort of notorious intensity. Um, if uh, anybody's seen Rosemary's Baby, he's kind of, I think he's probably most well known for playing opposite Mia Farrow in, in that. But why he's of particular interest to me as a, as a filmmaker um, is w- when he turned to directing his own films in, in the late 50s, um, he, he did so with uh, kind of a, an unprecedented and, and in my opinion, unmatched uh, level of devotion and, and, uh, and commitment to, to trying to represent the unique, uh, genuine expressions of the actors in the film uh, above above all else. A lot of the time that meant uh, a certain level of, of concession 
to the other to the, to the kind of the filmmaking apparatus uh, that surrounded that. Um, so uh, usually it meant uh, you know shooting on long lenses to stay out of the actor's way um, and handheld camera work. So actors kind of with the combination of those two things going in and out of focus, the blocking where the actors are going in the scene not being necessarily pre-planned, so it's all a little messy. Lighting very large general areas so the actors were able to move around freely um, and uh, as, as opposed to, you know, on a, on a, the way things are done on a conventional set where, where the lighting is very, very specific and everything is pre-planned and everyone knows exactly where they're going to be and the uh, actors and directors have talked about the characters extensively. Everybody talks so much about what the characters' motivations are. And Cassavetes was so uh, was so sort of obsessively interested in in spontaneity and genuine human expression that uh, you know he had forbid his actors to be able to to speak about their characters to one another and he wanted all of the the filmmaking apparatus to kind of be subservient to the 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 work that the actors were doing because of, because of how moved I've been ultimately by the performances in his is in his films it's something that I've always. Um, it's, it's something that I really look up to, and, and while I, I don't think that I, I come close to the same level of, of tenacity and, and, uh, and devotion to, to that principle, uh, it's definitely something that I, that I have aspired to with, um, with some of the movies that I've made. It, it just in terms of making the actor the, the central focus, the reason why we're all there, <laughs> we're, all, we're doing this in the first place. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I suppose the... Uh, what I asked you was um, how has his filmmaking in, informed the way you make films? But perhaps a more important question is just how has he informed you? That's certainly that's the way it might you know the way that I feel. I'm not a filmmaker, but there's lessons and, and values in those films in that in his approach to what you can discover when you're making something, and that's an interesting approach to life, not just not just uh, you know making films. For him, it was all about how can I. I capture a, a, a truly unique performance, a truly spontaneous kind of creative artistic moment from these performers. And, and, and a lot of, I mean, Cassavetes is kind of known for using improvisation and, and kind of the misconception is that the dialogue was improvised and these actors were just kind of taking a scenario and, and, and riffing. Um, th the movies were often quite heavily scripted mm -hmm. by Cassavetes, but what was improvisational about them was the the blocking so in other words where the actors kind of move around within the frame that is what wasn't necessarily set when they went to go shoot so and he's filming with long lenses generally so he can kind of stay out of the actors way he can mm -hmm. stay far away from them and the result of that you know not knowing where the actors are going to be necessarily and also being on these long lenses where it's harder to keep everything crisply in focus um, you get you get a lot of movement you get some kind of you know the camera kind of shakes a bit and then people are coming in out of focus quite quite frequently um, and then <laughs> the, ir <laughs> the irony is that then becomes uh, its own aesthetic right? yeah. as he's trying to avoid the kind of trappings of the traditional aesthetics of Hollywood movie making mm -hmm. you know his now that has become kind of a style that we're, we're used to but I think especially with a film like Faces it was pretty unique at the time So Faces was um, kind of, uh, in, in a way, it was kind of Cassavetti's breakthrough film um, as a, as kind of an independent director. He had done he had done this this film in the late '50s, Shadows, which was his most improvisational film. It, it was Shadows was born out of these these acting workshops that he was holding in New York City, mm -hmm. um, and he had a, he had sort of a company of actors, and they would improv they had these characters, they'd improvise these scenarios. Shadows was those improvisations kind of refined and filmed over a period of three years. Um, Faces came almost ten years later after he had kind of been working in the studio system a little bit as a director and 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 seeing if he could kind of implement some of his his philosophy within that context and of course um, getting getting pretty frustrated by that. Um, so he just kind of got to a got to a point. Um, he, yeah, he'd been working on the script for a number of years. Um, and and like I, like I said, um, faces is generally considered to be like shadows, um, where the dialogue is is uh, largely improvised. But it was very very precisely scripted, and and shot um, again in in Cassavetes and and his wife Jenna Rollins. They had a house in in L.A. I mm -hmm. think in the Hollywood Hills, 
and in faces the house is used for both the Jenna Rowan's uh, prostitute character's uh, apartment and also the husband and wife, their w- suburban home. It's, it's just two different sides of the house kind of redressed. Yeah. And um, the scenario is basically, I mean, it's a film, uh, Cassavetes was basically obsessed with man-woman relationships. That's all he said he was really interested in seeing in, in movies. Um, you know, um, scenarios that kind of reflected um, just what he was interested in his own his own life. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I think fa- Faces is it's kind of about like a it's kind of about a certain middle upper middle class malaise that we're kind of used to seeing um, explored by novelists and filmmakers. But I think that Faces attacks it in this um, in this way that puts you right in in the middle of um, some some pretty some pretty profound. Um, uh, I think faces puts you in the middle of uh, of the relationship and uh, of these of these people's lives in a, in a way that usually filmmakers try to be kind of detached when when I think they're especially with like having these these portraits of a certain kind of upper middle class um, malaise you, you kind of you want the filmmaking to adopt a style that's as kind of conservative as the people you're filming but mm-hmm. this film doesn't do that it puts you right in the middle of um, some pretty some pretty intense conversations and and some pretty difficult ways um, that these characters have of dealing with the the frustration they feel uh, the the next of the three is a woman of the influence yeah very hard to pare down Cassavetti's sort of oeuvre into you know only having the chance to, to play three films I mean I, I have so many feelings about about all of them. I mean, certainly like all, all the films, at least that are included in that five was, films criterion. Was that a curatorial box. choice on your part? I actually, when the was it limited to three? It, and, yeah, and we were limited to three, and and uh, I, I thought um, Faces, Woman Under the Influence, and Opening Night, um, because all three of them involve collaborations between Casavetti's and his wife Jenna Rollins um, in different capacities. Um, all three of them, I think, represent. Um, uh, have inter- they all have interesting stories and I think represent different kinds of success. With Women on the Influence, it was, ar- I think, I mean, arguably the only real commercial success in, in Cassavetti's sort of independent filmmaking uh, life. The, the kind of story you hear about in independent filmmaking where uh, Peter Falk, who's one of the, who's the, the male lead, puts up half the money, uh, Cassavetti's mortgages his house again to get another half the money and then they're just kind of piecing it together. And it's the story of um, Jenna Rollins, who uh, again is Cassavetti's uh, long longtime collaborator and, and wife, they met in acting school at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York. They met um, at the school and then married four months later and were together until Cassavetti's died in '89. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of the the heavy hitting performance of of her career that people really um, like to talk about. This particular collaboration between the two of uh, two of them, this character Mabel Longhetti. Is she a little bit off, or is she just a passionate person? You know, yeah. it's the what's so great about this movie, and I think a lot of Cassavetti's films, and just kind of a, studying Cassavetti's life is is you know what what is what is that that line between I mean not just insanity and genius, but but just how how really rigid are our norms? Like how weird do you really, you don't have to be that weird in order to to step outside these conventional boundaries that that we that we cram our our lives into. And that's that's really what this this film was about. I mean, this this person loves her children. The film is just it is an examination of whether or not her personality and and how kind of odd she is is ultimately a, a threat to these kids. And at a certain point, the Peter Falk character Nick, who loves this woman more than anything, but he's you know he's got people talking in one ear and the other, and and everybody's kind of making all these making all these judgments and he doesn't know what he feels and he's he's so conflicted and and has to make a decision about about what to do with this person you know what what's best what's best for his family and 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 I just I feel like so this movie really resonated with people and it really resonated with um, with women um, you know kind of yeah. in the in the 70s was kind of right as this this women's movement was was gaining a lot of momentum I think there was a lot of concern about how being at home all day with this kind of conventional suburban housewife kind of life could could drive people stir crazy and cause a lot of emotional tumultuousness and, and just uh, people really, really connected with it. July 27th and 31st is opening night. 
which is the, the latest of them uh, from 77, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Something like that. What is this one even about? Opening night is about a theater company that's preparing to open a play on, on Broadway. And um, Jenna Rollins plays this kind of famous movie actress who's coming back to doing theater. Um, she's, ex- you know, she's, she's really committed to her craft. She's excited to, like a lot of actors are, excited to really kind of dig into something on the kind of theater level, which you know, gives, gives actors more kind of time and space to, to really embody a character. But she's really struggling with this particular play because the character she's portraying is a lot older than the character she's used to playing and the kind of people she wants to play. And it forces her to kind of confront all of these insecurities she has about uh, about her own um, her own age. And this was a very real insecurity for Jenna Rollins herself. I was reading that she often um, would would lie about her age in interviews. And yeah, I think it's a kind of a time time honored tradition of uh, a writer knowing a performer really well and um, honing in on on <laughs> their very real insecurities and making art about it in a really honest way, um, in a way that becomes visibly kind of cathartic for that performer yeah um, and i think you i think that just really shows in, in a, yeah, another mesmerizing performance from from jenna rollins who's who's a an, an american actor that people don't talk about enough i feel faces is going to be the first of the three uh starting on july 13th which is a saturday at 6 30 that'll be again uh on the 17th at nine and then we've got a woman under the influence uh, on the 20th, uh, which is the uh, the following Saturday at 6.30 again. And then the 24th, uh, which is a Wednesday at 9. And then the last opening night again, Saturday, uh, 27th, 6.30. And uh, then the 31st uh, at 9. So uh, go to metrocinema.org to find out more about that and uh, book tickets and whatever else you need to do. Uh, but uh, make sure you come and uh, listen to Dylan talk about these uh, films and give him a bit more context than we've had time to do here uh, because he's a, a truly fascinating filmmaker and he's one of the people, uh, you know, I've mentioned already today, Harmony Korean. I'll never tire of kind of talking about people who have this very uh, urgent approach to art because it always it's like you're, you're constantly communicating with them and I think that's a, a key part of why they make the films the way they do. It's not that you're sitting in uh, absorbing what it is that someone's made it's designed to uh to make you engage with it force you into a discourse with it and uh i'd see no downside to that so dylan thank you for coming in thank you so much man We could uh, talk if about you, this movie in our Anthropocene. Oh. Um, it's either going to be exclusively environmentally based films and we're going to call it Anthropocene uh-huh, uh-huh. or just about films and we call it Misanzine. Wow, it could... Or Citizine Kino. I would be very surprised <laughs> if I really like that one, both actually. of these things don't already exist. Uh, the, they might, but they like, don't. I, not I'm he, pretty sure. You Googled it? Uh, I, well, there's no Anthropozine, and there's there, there definitely, definitely no Citizine Kine. <laughs> I, I Googled Mizanzine, and it's like, it seems like it's some school projects, but not here, so whatever. I don't That's think fine. anyone's been bright Mizanzine's enough to put that together. It yeah. is, it is. Let's yeah. Okay. So look forward to that. <laughs> That's uh, among the many films you weren't able to chat about were There Are No Fakes, directed by Jamie Kastner, which documents the curious and disturbing case of the purchase of an apparently original painting by an influential indigenous artist, Norville Morisot. After discovering that the authenticity of the piece was questionable, the buyer, Kevin Hearn of Bare Naked Ladies, takes legal action against the gallery that sold it to him. This, in turn, begins to unravel a dark tale of fraud, appropriation and exploitation and the innocence caught amid the chaos of culture and commerce. Uh, a couple of other features you can catch in July are counterculture classic Easy Rider, which is 50 years old this year, and also Claude Noritzeni and Marie Perrineau's Microcosm, uh, which is a beautiful documentary of detailed interactions between insects and other small invertebrates. Another of our new releases is Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, which is garnering a lot of attention at the moment. And as always, there's loads more to see over the course of the month as well. But I think, uh, I think, unfortunately, that is going to have to be all. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you to Leisha. Thank you. Thank you, William. Thanks, mate. Thank you, Heather. 
Thank you. And thank you for myself. And thank you for listening. Uh, what else do I need to remember? Go to, go to metrocinema.org for uh, more information on everything we've talked about. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public. That's where you can download and subscribe to this thing, uh, which is new. And actually very soon, perhaps even by next month, we'll be on the Alberta Podcast Network as well, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably going to be talking to uh, a couple of uh, creators of shows on that already from the film section. So that'd be a nice kind of cross-pollination of ideas. And uh, we're possibly even going to get some of those guys to come in and do some screenings in a sort of turkey shoot style uh, for the show that goes through films that are aesthetically challenged. Yeah. And then talks about how to improve them afterwards. I like that idea. Very cool. Anyway, until next month, take it easy and uh, we'll see you in the lobby. See ya. Bye. <laughs> Wait, are you all waiting for No, no, I was just, was just wondering what was going to come out. I just didn't, I, I never, there's no way to sign off that doesn't feel awkward, so. That's your sign off right there. <laughs>